0: Alright, this morning we're going to begin with our first look at the book of Acts. I'm not going to dive into a um, full-blown, per se, introduction, per se, because we have went through that um, as far as who wrote the book, why why the book was written. But we will just briefly, at the tip of the iceberg, touch, that, touch on that just a little bit. So we're going to begin... Uh, with really today, we're going to get through verses one and two. Um, but this whole part section, if you would, we'll call the heavenly departure. We run down through verse 11. So let's read those verses, Acts 1 through 11, to set our context and then we'll get into it, okay? Here we go. This is reading out the New American Standard. The first account I can post, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of forty days, and speaking of things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised which, he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, it is at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Verse 9, And after he had said these things, he lifted, uh, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been up, taken up from you into heaven, will come just in the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So that'll kind of set our context for the next few weeks as we go through. And as we begin the book of Acts, there has been a high debate about the beginning of of Acts and the end of Luke. If you remember, this is the same author that wrote the gospel. So there is some similarities and there is some continuation, if you will, out of Luke or out of Luke 24 moving into Acts 1. So here is a couple if we were to look at that we would see. So in Acts 1, we see Jesus teaches the disciples through the Spirit. In Acts 24, Jesus teaches the disciples after the resurrection, including explicit times. He offers many um, proofs of his risen state in Acts 1. Luke 24, he demonstrates his risen state. He appears for 40 days. That's missing in Luke 24. He speaks of the kingdom in Acts 1. He does give, an, uh, though not explicit, an exposition, uh, in verses 27, 45, and 47, he eats with his disciples in Acts. Uh, he's eating in the present. So if you keep going down that list, you're going to see similarities as we transition in this two-volume set out of the gospel of Luke and into the narrative book of Acts as we move through it. So there has been some debate. Among scholars, and they look at three factors when you get into that. I'm going to read these, and these are a quote. Uh, if you look down at the bottom of the handout that I've got, you'll see the there's some the books that I use for that a bibliography, if you will, just so you let you know where I'm pulling the sources from. All right. So there's this narrative function, and when he uses that narrative function, Luke intends to tell uh, the story of the ascension. And he gives final instructions from Jesus, and it's in a rhetorical matter, and this variation of the retelling of the story. So, if you look at this, there is some variation as it varies just a little, and you see some variance in it. Then, thirdly, there is this uh, character in Acts one through eleven that Jesus that we bear in mind that as a reader is not we don't want to distract them from it. Uh, but we want to point everything to Christ. So when we look at the book of Acts, I will say this, it has been said by many scholars, many people. The book of Acts cannot, its importance cannot be overstated. One of the gentlemen that, uh, Francis Turton, that wrote a three volume systematic theology actually had this quote to say about the book of Acts. And he says the following, Those who do not accept this volume of Scripture can have nothing to do with the Holy Spirit, for they cannot know whether the Holy Spirit has yet been sent by the disciple, neither can they claim to be the church, since they cannot prove when this body was established or when it was cradled. The book of Acts is one of those volumes of work that is so important and so immense that its place in Scripture cannot be overstated. We cannot look at its importance and not the connection of it. And if we look at it, and I've said this before, and some people have heard me say this, Acts is really the bridge, and it's the bridge that connects the gospel because we learn of Jesus' life on earth and that ministry that he has and then we see the death, burial, the uh, resurrection. And when we see that, we now move into the age that is different because they're proclaiming the, resurre- the, the resurrected Savior. And so there is this bridge from the earthly life and to the uh, ascension, and we're preaching the resurrected Christ. Not only that, but we begin to learn the historical nature of the churches in which a lot of the epistles are written. We learn uh, the church at Ephesus. We learn, it talks about the elders, the leaders, Paul instates them. We'll get into that in the later chapter, the latter chapters of Acts. We see the historical conversion of Paul because when we first introduced to Paul, what is Paul? He's persecuting the church. He's ravaging the church, house to house, pulling them out of the, their homes. And we see that, Conversion, and then most of the New Testament is written by this guy that was ransacking the Christian community. So, this bridge from the Gospels, from the historical narrative of Christ, resurrection, and then we move to the epistles, and Acts that so beautifully placed in the middle and provides all the detail that we need to put those together, if you will. And, and so, as we look at that, it, it it is a primary authority about the early church or Christianity, the establishment of Christianity. One writer who was anonymous, I want to read this, he said, Consider this, speaking of the book of Acts, To it we owe almost all we know of the first spreading of Christianity in Syria, its arrival in Asia Minor and Europe, of the original original gospel that was preached by the apostles, of the life and the work of the apostle Peter, the work and life of Stephen, and as I said, the work and life of the apostle Paul. We see in our book, if you were to look at, if I look at mine, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, if we were to say the title of the book. Some have really called it the Acts of the Holy Spirit, some have called it the Acts of the Ascendant Lord. But when we look through it, we're going to see a move, and the Holy Spirit's going to work in the church, through the church, in the life of the believers, through the life of the believers. And we're going to see this thread woven throughout, and that's going to be the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to empower, as we read. It's going to direct the actions of the disciples but when it directs the actions of the disciples, of the apostles, of those teaching, it's still doing it in the Lord, and in the matter in which our sovereign Lord wants it done. The Holy Spirit, if we look at that overview, is mentioned 50 times, more than 50 times in this book. And there is some references, references to the Holy Spirit. And you will see those references, just a few that is mentioned you have the promise the gift of the holy spirit baptism of the holy spirit fullness effusion receiving speaking comfort of the holy spirit all of these things as we will progress through this book so today let us begin and let's begin with the first two verses so let me read them again for you that we've already read them at the first but let's read these again just to set our Context. To the first account I composed, Theophilus, about the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had been, after he by the Holy Spirit had given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. The very book, the very opening of the book of Acts, it is meant to recall those opening verses of Luke. We'll look at those momentarily because this is a indication that this is the beginning of the second volume of work. Luke's composed one and now we have the uh, second volume. Some translations say in instead of the former account, uh, the first account, some say former account, first book, or here in mine we have the first account of the New American Standard. Uh, it is sort of a brief introduction to this second volume, just very, very brief. But in this time of writing, we do see somebody else that writes historical work, not scripture, Josephus, the church historian, that we see a lot of the historical narratives through Josephus. Josephus begins two works, and he begins the first volume with Epaphrodites, Most Excellent of Men. He begins the second volume with a brief introduction, by means of the former volume, my most honored, Epaphrodites. Luke doesn't do something novel for us as Christians. He's writing a second volume to the very gospel that he re- wrote, and he's making a clear statement. And that statement is that the story of Jesus is not complete. He is going to tell you about more about his ministry, more about his death, more about his resurrection, but he's going to tell you more of how he's going to work through this. And really, this could be called the second volume of the History of Church Origins, if you wanted to call, that, call it that. And it's dedicated to whom? Theophilus. What do we know about Theophilus? What do, what do we know about him? What, what are we, do we have any indication? Have we introduced him before? And we have. In Luke 1. Verses 1 through 3, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to pile an account of these things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. It seemed fitting for me, Luke, as well, having investigated everything carefully, from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent author. That's our first account that we're introduced to him in the Gospel of Luke, verse 1. There is speculation about who Theophilus is. It's very indecisive when you look at it. Some have suggested that it's not a literal person, that it is just a brief, dear friends of God I've wrote. and It's no really compelling argument. Uh, to say that this is not a real person, he gives him that title, most excellent. Uh, so that kind of rules out that it's not a real person, but he more likely was a person of rank, would have been person of uh, somewhat known rank in that historical world. In the uh, in the book of Acts. Let's look at Acts 23, verse 26. Let's look at a few of these, because this same um, word is used to describe a couple people. 23, 26. Here it is. He, to the most excellent governor, same thing, Felix. So we know that Felix is a historical. uh, And then in 24, verse 2, we're going to see the same word used. 24, verse 2, after Paul had been summoned, uh, Terlis began to accuse him, saying the governor, saying through, uh, we have through you attained much peace since by your providence reforms being carried out to this notion. He, he uses that same term. I may have put it in the wrong one. 26, 25. Let's go there. Paul, once again, we're seeing this uh, term used. Here we go. But Paul said, I I am not out of my hand most excellent, Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. So this word is used to describe who we know are historical features, this word for most excellent. So this person is a real person. Luke is writing to a someone, a, a real person, not just an overall group of people or something. He is writing to real people. Okay, so that name means "friend of God" or "loved by God." It's a very common, everyday Greek name in this world. It's it's kind of like Chaylen. It's a name you hear every day, but it is seriously, it would be a very common name in that time period. You know what? You know what? If y'all would have heard how many names, my ways it's been pronounced is so. Funny, I have been called pretty close to shampoo one time. I think it was salon. That's what it was. Salon. I had to think of what it was. As in college, professor. You know, you, you you ever seen the professors that they're going down the road? You know, alphabetically, so you know kind of where you fall. They would get, you know, they would get to the right at the H's, and you'd see them go. I'm, not, I'm here over. You know, it was just kind of one of those names you knew they were going to stumble, but so. But it's a very common name. It, it would be a common name, not like mine. So it would be a very common name. So, all right, so most speculate, most commentators, most writers, most Christians speculate that perhaps by the time that Luke writes that Theophilus is already a Christian, and Luke writes to help him and others that would have been part of the group or part of the audience of Theophilus or part of that that that, that uh, group of people that he would have been surrounded, um, but he Rights to give them a reliable account of the very early beginnings of Christianity, Uh, and honestly, I say this a lot: we as Christians need to be reminded what the church has went through. Not just this church, but I encourage everybody to read church history. What? Does anybody know what's coming up? October is it October thirty-first? I believe it was the Reformation. So we, I encourage everybody to find Nick Needham wrote a very four volume set, very readable. It's, it's not uses a lot of language. It's very just, we can, it's an easy read, a four volume set on church history. And I could not recommend it enough. It does take some time, read a little bit. It's like, you know, one bite at a time. That's how you're going to do it. Just, just one bite. But I encourage everyone to read church history and look at what went on. I mean, just uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you read about the Marian martyrs. Uh, Latimer and Ridley went to the stake, were burned. Um, Tyndale, all these people, and look at what it has gone to get to where we're at today. And I think we all need to be reminded of that. Okay? One last thing that I will say uh, about Theophilus, most likely, possibly, probably, maybe, he was a representative member of the intelligent middle class, because during this time, what empire is ruling? Rome. Okay? So perhaps he was part of that intelligent middle class, that, that class that had a little clout in, in Rome, and Luke is writing, and he's hoping to win over this group of people, that they will have less prejudice and more of a favorable opinion of Christianity. And the one that was the the attitude toward Christianity from them at that time wasn't that favorable. So he writes in hope that maybe they would. So we look at this whole thing today, we're looking at verses one through two, but actually when we look at it, we see in our English that verse two concludes a sentence. In the original structure of this, this sentence would not have been one long sentence that would not end until Verse five. Okay, that's just a side note. If you would, just something I thought about. Um, so, through the introduction, through this little brief introduction, this very first thing, we're able to conclude that right that Luke writes this volume or this second volume of work to the same audience that he wrote the first volume. Uh, some, though, I don't believe in this, and some may, but I don't. I don't believe in this because we have two accounts. Some believe that this may have been part of a larger volume of work that Luke was intending on writing. Maybe three sets, four sets. Um, we have what God intended us to have, but some have said that and they, their argument comes from reason acts ends, um, so abruptly. Okay? All right. And it begins in the second part of that. I'm about, uh, he writes about what? All that Jesus began to do and teach. This best translates all that Jesus taught. um, He did begin, but it's everything that Jesus teaches. He begins with a a bit of hyperbole, if you will, um, just kind of overstating it and and using exaggeration. um, Because John... Mark, Matthew, Luke, their writings and historical accounts of Jesus does not begin to scratch the surface of the things he did. What does John say about it? The books of the world couldn't contain all the things he did. So, even though he says all that he taught, it doesn't contain all that he taught. John was very explicit there, but... He he uses this sort of hyperbole. So So think of it this way. Here's the best way to sum them up in a one-sentence statement. The first volume is all about why Jesus didn't talk from the beginning until his ascension. And the second volume begins with the ascension and continues from there. Luke writes, and he essentially wants to refresh Theophilus' memory. I've already written to you once, but here you go again. Jesus is still going to teach after His ascension, though He's no longer visible. It's not, He's not tangible per se where they were touching Him, but He is going to teach through what? The Holy Spirit. He's going to teach through the Holy Spirit, okay? And we've already said, we're going to see through our time and acts, whatever that's going to be, that it is going to be the Spirit moving through. That statement, begin to do and teach, really sums up the twofold purpose of the Gospels. They all recorded what? The words Jesus spoke and the actions that Jesus did and performed. Jesus is presented in Luke 24, verse 19, as being powerful in word and deed before God and all people. And then the narrative ends with his ascension. In Luke 24, 51, the opening verses of Acts, it really suggests that Luke is about to narrate what Jesus is going to continue to do after his ascension through the Holy Spirit and the ministry of his followers. Verse 2, that is the very climax of the gospel uh, when he was taken up into heaven. It's a new beginning. But when we look at it, there are two interesting accounts here. Two things that pop up on this verse. Number one, it suggests that Jesus instructed the disciples through the Holy Spirit. Some suggest that it's put this way because the Spirit is also the means of instruction in the church. Though people speak, though preachers speak, though people speak, it is still... We are literally reading and explaining what is done and we have to be in prayer and trust in God and trust in the Holy Spirit. It's not that we're in a subconscious state or anything, but it is done. We we saturate in prayer what we do. Secondly, we are told that the instructions are given to the apostles whom the world had chosen, whom He, Jesus, had chosen. This refers back to the Gospels. This is the twelve. The twelve whom he had chosen. The twelve that he commissioned. Acts 21 and 22, beginning verse 21, there it is necessary that one of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and among us, beginning with the baptism of John, until that day he was taken from us, one must become a witness with us with us, of his resurrection. That makes it clear that the term apostles was used for those who had witnessed the ministry of Jesus, who had witnessed him being taken up, who had witnessed the resurrected appearances. And unless you look at Acts 14, 4 and 4 as exceptions, Luke seems to keep this number at 12. It is possible that the term apostles is not a technical term anywhere in Luke and Acts. But it's simply a term of a missionary, one that is sent by Jesus. And Luke does not all the time distinguish the twelve per se. He doesn't uh, distinguish them from Paul, from Barnabas in that regard. But when he speaks, it seems to be little doubt that the 12 are the important transitional group in Luke's mind for the early church. Luke further adds that the apostles will play a role in the end, the eschaton, the, the end times when the kingdom comes full to earth and the 12 tribes of Israel uh, are judged in Luke 22, verse 30. So as we look at that, and we conclude there this morning, our first two verses, we see who it is addressed to, Theophilus, this man of stature. And Luke refers back to encompass all of the gospel. But yet we're going to look forward at what is coming in the book of Acts as we move through it. So this bridge that is going to bridge all of this together is one of those of utmost importance. So this morning we will conclude there and we will continue moving next week. Is there any questions or any words or anything that anybody would like to add or anything? for God, person, for God, so that will just be believers. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where that comes from. Sure. I Yeah, it, and you're dead on with that. With it being a because that's what they do look at. That all of them that you see, if you if you go, if we look back, that some of them just say that that's affinity or the love for God, and that's where they get those. That's writing to an overall group of Christians that love God. And it would be from then till now, and it's that's what it seems to be uh, addressed. So that is where they come. And, and honestly, it's kind of surprising the scholarship that really does favor um, that reading. There, there's quite a bit of scholarship that does. I'm not saying I do, but there is scholarship that does. I, I you know, seem to support that being an individual person. I don't. I don't subscribe to that. Either. Yeah. Find it interesting, like, well, um, Why would it be the one person? But at the same time, it should still be the one person and two. Sure. And and it goes back to I think what uh, R. C. Spro I think said it a lot too. You know, with we talk about one meaning of scripture, many applications. So it is still applied to us as a Christian group today. We we still it could be a you know addressed to the Christian group. Um, because everything in there is applicable to what we're going to do, but we get wrestled with the original, what it is, and then we apply it. So yes, it absolutely applies to those of us that that are Christians and love the Lord. So absolutely. Would there be anything else? Any others? All right. If not, let us...